0: With the terrible death of George Floyd at the hands, or rather the knee, of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chavon, an eruption of massive protest, along with some rioting and looting, has occurred across the nation. In light of this, another special episode of this podcast is in order. Carl Jung wrote that, Quote,
1: There must be typical myths which serve to work out our racial and national complexes. Jacob Burckhardt seems to have glimpsed this truth when he said that every Greek of the classical period carries in himself a bit of Oedipus, and every German, a little bit of Faust. Unquote.
0: If there is truth to this statement, and honestly, I think there is, then every American has a bit of Patrick Henry, and a bit of Frederick Douglass in him or her. Patrick Henry declared, give me liberty, or give me death, and Frederick Douglass was a runaway slave who obtained his freedom from a courageous escape, and then he paid off his enslaver and advocated quite forcefully and persuasively for equality and freedom for all. I think we all may have a bit of Samuel Adams in us, too. He was quite the rabble-rouser, and we will get to him specifically in this episode. And finally, paraphrasing several philosophers, our own hearts are divided between doing what we know is right in doing what we want to do despite knowing it is wrong. This complex heritage might explain, at least in part, some of the following events the Stamp Act protest, the Boston massacre, the Boston Tea Party, the New York draft riots, Bloody Sunday, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. riots, and the Rodney King riots. These events and hundreds more have had a major influence, sometimes Indispensable effect on the course of American and often world history. Welcome, our fellow Patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents, and speeches, founding fathers, and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. I am Judge Michael Warren of the Oakland County Circuit Court and co creator of Patriot Week. This episode, we will take a detour from our exploration of the Declaration of Independence and focus instead on riots, protests, and mobs in American history. If you are under the mistaken impression that what is happening as a consequence of George Floyd's death is somehow unexpected, you have another thing coming. We will explain when we return in just a minute. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. By the way, if you need a Declaration of Independence or Constitution fix, before our next episode, you can get one by visiting patriotweek.org. In addition to all the normal goodies on the website, we recently posted a primer on the Declaration, the Federal Constitution, the Constitution of Patriot Week's home state, Michigan, and vital laws of Michigan. And don't worry, if you're not a Michigan-based person, this is still really, really helpful. The is called You and the Law, and you can check it out at PatriotWeek.org under the Education tab at Patriot Papers. Also, as a housekeeping matter, we are adding guest narrators and some new jams, and we hope you enjoy. Now, to riots, protests, and mobs in American history. We will begin exploring this rather unwieldy topic by examining three events that propelled the American colonies into independence the resistance to the Stamp Act, the Boston Massacre, and the Boston Tea Party. You probably heard about them in history class, but let's face it, unless you're in high school right now, those classes were a while ago, and in any event, they likely did not give those topics their due. These key confrontations will all be covered in different ways in later podcasts, but our focus here is to address how these were part of a tradition of direct action in the colonies that in no small measure, led to the American Revolution. First, let's turn our attention to the Stamp Act riots. To do this will be our exemplary guest narrator, Brent Bassett. He is a trained lawyer, and that's why his segment is dubbed Brent's Brief. Brent, take it away.
3: In 1765, the English Empire passed the Stamp Act, The Act was intended to raise revenue from the American colonies to help pay for the enormous war debt the Empire had incurred in connection with the Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War, which began in the colonies. The Stamp Act made it illegal to sell or buy certain items unless a tax was paid as evidenced by a stamp on the goods. The items included key legal documents such as wills, contracts, mortgages, marriage licenses, and insurance. It also taxed newspapers, almanacs, pamphlets, playing cards, and dice. The taxes were not that onerous, and many thought it was a more than fair way to pay down the debt. Leading colonists opposed the act. Patrick Henry became an overnight sensation by leading the resistance in Virginia, which soon spread across the continent. The colonists believed that this was a great violation of the rights of Englishmen not to be taxed unless it was approved by the legislature. The empire claimed that the colonies were virtually represented by the members of parliament. The colonists dissented, explaining that their colonial legislatures had to approve any taxes. The colonists had no members of parliament and therefore no say in what was taxed internally in the colonies. Even if the taxes were minor, to allow the precedent that Parliament could tax the colonies without representation would in essence allow the English to have absolute power to control their lives. The power to tax, after all, is the power to destroy. The Virginia Resolves, approved by the Virginia House of Burgesses and drafted by Patrick Henry, explain:
1: The taxation of the people by themselves, or by persons chosen by themselves to represent them, who could only know what taxes the people are able to bear or the easiest method of raising them and must themselves be affected by every tax laid on the people is the only security against a burdensome taxation in the distinguishing characteristic of British freedom without which the ancient constitution cannot exist. Unquote.
3: In addition, the Stamp Act also subverted the right to a jury trial by moving enforcement of the Act to the Admiralty Courts in Canada or England. Those courts had no juries. To show that they meant business, the colonists issued countless denunciations of the taxes, convened a Stamp Act Congress, established committees of correspondence between the states to organize their resistance, and refused to allow the stamps to be used or the taxes to be collected. To ensure that no one violated the Stamp Act, the colonists employed intimidation and force against those who were enforcing England's will. Mechanically, the Stamp Act worked very differently than we might think of taxes today. This was not a sales tax or a payroll tax that was simply deducted or collected by shop owner. Instead, they had physical stamps like you might see on a pack of cigarettes today. Parliament commissioned stamp distributors in the colonies to collect the tax and issue stamps that could be placed on the taxed goods. The commissioners, then, were an easy target for the colonial resistance. In Boston, a group originally dubbed the Loyal Nine, but later the Sons of Liberty, started to direct the resistance. Rallied by Samuel Adams, they published Anti-Stamp Act pamphlets and distributed signs all over town attacking the stamps. They led the first recorded physical resistance. Their target was Andrew Oliver. Oliver was a merchant and provincial official in Boston. He was appointed stamp collector without even asking for it. On August fourteenth, 1765, Oliver's effigy hung from a tree. They also added a large boot with a little devil peeking out, clearly designed to malign the Earl of Butte, the driving force behind the Stamp Act the tree on which this was all displayed was dubbed the Liberty Tree, and thousands gathered there in opposition to the Stamp Act. An article by Mass Moments describes what happened next.
1: Quote, but the men who organized the event had something more political in mind. They put on a carefully orchestrated bit of street theater, stopping each cart and stamping its goods. The large crowd included laboring men and women, Apprentices, schoolboys, artisans, merchants, and a few gentlemen disguised as artisans. At 5 p.m., the effigies were cut down, and a good-natured mock funeral procession passed the state house, shouting, Liberty, property, and no stamps. The marchers proceeded to the stamp office and pulled the little building down.
3: They then marched to tax collector Oliver's home smashed his windows, demolished his carriage house, broke into his cellar, and, best of all, drank his cellar of wine. Samuel Adams explained the importance of the day.
1: Quote, The Sons of Liberty, on the 14th of August, 1765, a day which ought to be forever remembered in America, animated with a zeal for their country, then upon the brink of destruction, and resolved at once to save her. It worked. Oliver
3: quit the next day. Although Oliver was done, the Stamp Act was still a threat. On August 26, 1765, the mob turned its attention to three other British officials. William Story, an official of the Vice Admiralty Court, Benjamin Howell, the Comptroller of Customs, and Lieutenant Governor and Chief Justice Thomas Hutchinson. Ironically, Oliver's brother-in-law. Hutchinson was very wealthy and had a beautiful mansion. That is, until August 26th. On that day, the protesters stormed his mansion, stripped it of its doors, furniture, paintings, silverware, and his slate roof. Yes, his slate roof. They basically left an empty shell. Boston was not alone. Stamp burnings and riots occurred throughout the colonies, Warehouses and homes of stamp collectors were trashed. And this all happened well before the Stamp Act actually took effect, which was November 1st, 1765. Before that day, all but one of the stamp collectors refused to accept his office or had quit. Nearly everyone in the colonies ignored the tax. Notice that despite all this violence and chaos, no one had been killed. They wanted to shut down the Stamp Act, and they carefully targeted those instrumentalities of the Act who would have enforced it or made it operational. Once they achieved those aims, they were satisfied. It was a principled opposition. And it proved too great for England to resist. England repealed the tax in 1766. However, as a parting shot, Parliament passed the Declaratory Act still asserting it had the authority to impose internal taxes on the colonies. That was a mistake to be explored in much more detail another day. In short, the massive resistance to the Stamp Act ignited resistance to British tyranny, increased colonial awareness of their rights, and proved that provocative and strong resistance could prevail over British obstinacy. It set the stage for the American Revolution ten years later. The second event we will be covering, the Boston Massacre, will be presented by another guest narrator, Michael Skanechny. His nickname is Skin, so this is Skin's segment. He has just started his own podcast entitled Be Reasonable by Mike Gerard. Check it out. Mike Gerard, the floor is yours.
4: Thank you, Brent Bassett. That was a fabulous Brent's Brief. You know, the reaction to the Stamp Act was really something else, but, you know, the Boston Massacre, that was really riveting. Now, as you heard, the Stamp Act provoked resistance all across the colonies, and Boston played a leading and dramatic role in forcing its repeal. Boston would play center stage, and really, it was the only stage in the Boston Massacre. The massacre occurred on March 5, 1770, about five years after the Stamp Act riots. To make a long story short, the British colonies had a series of confrontations regarding the British attempts to oppose their will in connection with trade, taxes, and other policies. Boston continued to be a major hotspot of colonial opposition. And to clamp down on the colonies, the British occupied Boston with over 2,000 regular troops. Now, the town only had 16,000 people, so this was a huge military presence resentment against the troops was high. First, the soldiers were attempting to intimidate the patriots. Second, the soldiers often took additional side jobs to supplement their poor pay. Third, many of them were rude, haughty, and unmannered to Bostonians, including women. Fourth, on February 22nd, a customs officer tried to defend a store owned by a loyalist which was being pelted with rocks by a mob. He stupidly shot blindly into the crowd and killed 11-year-old Christopher Sider. Some say he was the first martyr of the war. Fifth, just a few days later, Bostonian workers and British soldiers got into a major brawl. On the night in question, Private Hugh White was guarding the customs house on King Street in Boston. The Customs House, of course, symbolically and practically represented everything the colonists opposed about British rule. And if you've ever been to Boston in the winter, it's a cold, cold place. And it was on that night. Private White became surrounded by taunting, angry Bostonians. Soon, White stabbed a colonist with his bayonet, and he was pelted not just with insults, but snowballs with clamshells inside, as well as ice, stones, and other debris. White called for help, and soon he was joined by Captain Thomas Preston and several other soldiers. They formed a defensive perimeter. The crowd was on top of them, some taunting the soldiers to shoot. Reports conflict about what exactly happened next, but someone eventually responded to the word fire and a soldier shot. Then the rest of the soldiers— other than Captain Preston, joined in. At the end of the volley, a total of five colonists suffered fatal wounds, and another six were also shot. Perhaps the most famous victim was Crispus Atticus, who worked on the docks in Boston. His father, an African-American slave, and his mother, a Natic Native American. Atticus himself was a runaway slave. Most accounts show him at the front of the crowd and list him as the first one killed and many consider him to be the first casualty of the American Revolution. Martin Luther King Jr. noted his courage and vital part in American history in his 1964 book, Why We Can't Wait. Following the carnage, the British soldiers quickly retreated. Eventually, the soldiers went on trial for murder. As living proof of his unassailable integrity, John Adams defended the soldiers. The first to be tried was Captain Preston. Adams's robust and intelligent defense resulted in an acquittal. In the second trial of the 6 British soldiers, Adams procured outright acquittals for 4 and 2 were convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Now, a couple of observations here. The crowd could have clearly torn the soldiers to pieces, but they let them retreat. Boston could have later lynched the soldiers or rioted around the courthouse, but they did not. John Adams could have refused to take the case, but he took it as a duty for himself, the rule of law and justice. He reflected on this. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers procured me anxiety and obloquy enough. It was, however, one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. Judgment of death against those soldiers would have been as foul a stain upon this country as the executions of the Quakers or witches anciently. As the evidence was, the verdict of the jury was exactly right. This, however, is no reason why the town should not call the action of that night a massacre, nor is it any argument in favor of the governor or minister who caused them to be sent there. But it is the strongest proofs of the danger of standing armies. Now, the acquittals themselves, did not result in riots or destruction. The Bostonians grudgingly accepted it. Still, the fallout of the incident was monumental. Colonists, including Sons of Liberty John Adams, who was Samuel Adams' second cousin, and a quite vivid engraving by Paul Revere, and yes, that Paul Revere, were able to turn the event into a scathing rebuke against the British, as yet another sign of British opposition. Bostonians immediately called the incident a massacre. It reverberated across the continent and turned many forever against the British. The colonies were moving ever closer
0: to revolution. Judge Warren, back to you. Thanks, Mike Gerard. You really are reasonable. Boston also takes center stage for our third event, possibly the most famous act of protest and civil disobedience in American history, the Boston Tea Party. To make another really long story short, the British had, through the Tea Act of 1773, imposed a tax on English tea, which the colonists considered to be a violation of, yes, you guessed it, the deeply held principle that Englishmen were to have no taxation without representation. The act generated enormous resistance, despite the fact that it cut taxes and it reduced the price of English tea significantly. The New York Sons of Liberty Resolutions on Tea, issued on November 29, 1773, explained the Patriot sentiment exceedingly well. It resolved that any person aiding with the introduction of tea, selling, landing, carrying, or buying of tea, or collecting or paying the tea tax, was, quote, deemed an enemy to the liberties of America, unquote. They explained that it was necessary to condemn such people Quote, to
1: prevent a calamity which, of all others, is to be dreaded, slavery. We, being influenced from a regard to liberty and disposed to use all lawful endeavors in our power to defeat the pernicious project and to transmit to our posterity those blessings of freedom which our ancestors have handed down to us and to contribute to the support to the common liberties of America which are in danger to be subverted,
0: In Boston Harbor were anchored three British merchant ships holding a total of 342 chests of tea. And these weren't little chests, these were big chests. And they could not be unloaded because of colonial resistance. And the ships could not leave because British law would not allow them to leave without paying a customs fee. The ships had 20 days to unload the tea or customs officials could confiscate it. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty sprung into action again. They held mass meetings of thousands, demanding that the ships return to England without paying any kind of tax. The governor, our old friend Thomas Hutchison, refused. The Sons of Liberty kept careful vigil to make sure the tea was not unloaded. On the last day of the 20-day deadline, being December 16, 1773, Samuel Adams held another massive meeting. Approximately five to 7,000 people attended. This was a humongous meeting considering Boston only had a population of approximately 16,000. When the meeting received news that the governor refused to relent, Samuel Adams declared to the throng, quote, This meeting can do nothing further to save the country, That was a signal for the Sons of Liberty to take action. That night, that is the evening of December 16th, 1773, the Sons dressed as Mohawk Native Americans, not because they were racist. Maybe they were, but that was not the point. They used the disguise to avoid arrest and to give cover to anyone who might have witnessed them to say they could not make a positive identification. I mean, but let's face it, most people really knew who they were anyway, but they wanted that excuse to not to be able to be hauled into court and testify against the friends. They boarded the ships, bottled up in the harbor, and tossed the tea overboard. This was a huge economic loss. A quick observation here, like the Stamp Act riots, this action was taken directly against the source of the issue, the tea and the ships that carried it. No one was killed or maimed. It was clearly a carefully organized effort with some spectacular theater. The consequence of the Tea Party was decisive in the course of American and world history. It solidified and emboldened the resolve of those colonists opposed to British oppression. They would take matters in their own hands. The time for talk had passed, and it hardened the hearts of the British. They quickly passed a set of acts that the Patriots cleverly labeled the Intolerable Acts. The Boston Port Act shut down the Boston Harbor until restitution was made, the destroyed tea. Like that was going to happen. Commerce was dead. The Massachusetts Government Act revoked the colonial charter, abolished the Massachusetts legislature, and brought the colony under direct control of appointees of the royal governor, parliament, and the king. It also limited town meetings to one a year. The principle of self-government was dead in Massachusetts. The Administration of Justice Act allowed the royal governor of Massachusetts to transfer trials of royal officials to other places throughout the empire. George Washington called it the Murder Act because it so eviscerated justice, he thought it would encourage murder. And the Quartering Act allowed the governor of each colony to quarter troops in vacant buildings of his choosing. Not only were the colonies occupied, they had to pay for it. The colonists reacted by convening the First Continental Congress and were emboldened to protect their freedoms. Dr. Joseph Warren was a key son of liberty in Boston, and their best orator. On March 6, 1775, in commemoration of the Boston Massacre, he gave a soaring oration to an immense crowd of thousands in Boston. Now, my daughter Leah, you know, the co-creator of Patriot Week, has done her research. And we are pretty sure Dr. Joseph Warren is a distant relation to my family. So please indulge me while I quote a small portion of his commemoration, explaining the chasm that had opened between the empire and the Americans. Quote, The hearts of Britons and Americans, which lately felt the generous glow of mutual confidence and love, now burn with jealousy and rage. But now the Briton too often looks on the American with an envious eye, taught to consider his just plea, for the employment of his earnings as the fact of pride and stubborn opposition to the parent country. Whilst the American beholds the Britain as a ruffian, ready first to take away his property and next what is still dearer to every virtuous man, the liberty of his country, unquote. Dr. Warren then reflected on the military occupation of Boston and the effect of the intolerable acts. He continued, quote, It is the hand of Britain that inflicts the wound. The arms of George, our rightful king, have been employed to shed that blood. Could we, but for a moment, entertain a thought of giving up our liberty? The man who meanly will submit to wear a shackle, contemns the noblest gift of heaven, and impiously affronts the God that made him free. Short-sighted mortals see not the numerous links of small and great events which form the chain on which the fate of kings and nations is suspended. Our country loudly calls to you to be circumspect, vigilant, active, and brave. Our country is in danger, but not to be despaired. Our enemies are numerous and powerful, but we have many friends determining to be free and heaven and earth will aid the resolution. On you depend the fortunes of America. You are to decide the important question on which rests the happiness and liberty of millions yet born. Act worthy of yourselves. The faltering tongue of hoary age calls on you to support your country. The lisping infant raises its suppliant hands, imploring defense against the monster slavery. Your fathers look from their celestial seats with smiling approbation on their sons, who boldly stand forth the cause of virtue, but sternly frown upon the inhuman miscreant, who, to secure the loaves and fishes to himself, would breed a serpent to destroy his children. But pardon me, my fellow citizens, I know you want no zeal or fortitude. You will maintain your rights or perish in the generous struggle. However difficult the combat, you will never decline it when freedom is the prize. Unquote. Now, there is a reason that Dr. Warren was well known as one of the most inspirational leaders of the lead-up to the American Revolution. This is on the same class and category as Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death by Patrick Henry. As strident as he was, Dr. Warren did not call for independence on that day. But the colonies were not going to submit to British tyranny. In the end, the Intolerable Acts were intolerable. Neither side would give in. The die was cast. The American Revolution was inevitable. Although there is much more history here, really, uh, each one could have its own mini-series, these three incidents, the Stamp Act riots, the Boston Massacre, and the Boston Tea Party, all played in very different ways, indispensable roles in securing America's freedom against British tyranny. Riots, mobs, and protests are older than the republic, and key to its birth. And now back to Mike Girard and another skin segment.
4: We're now going to jump ahead a few decades for our fourth event. Although just amazing, you may have never heard of it: the New York draft riots. Let me set the stage. It's the summer of 1863. The Civil War is a hurricane sweeping the country and rendering destruction upon thousands and thousands of men. The Battle of Gettysburg was just fought from July 1st to the 3rd, and tens of thousands of men were slaughtered. When the war started, most people thought it would be done in one, maybe two quick and decisive battles. On one side, Lincoln is under attack for being a warmonger, and on the other side, he's a weak leader. Many in the North are pressuring for peace, and although the North turned back an invasion in Pennsylvania at Gettysburg, that the South could turn around and strike again was a real possibility. The Civil War hit New York hard. Its industry was heavily dependent on Southern cotton, which was now gone. Although the slave trade was illegal, before the Civil War, New York had a thriving underground slave trade. Democrats and anti-war politicians were riling up whites by claiming that the recently issued Emancipation Proclamation would mean job losses for poor working class whites, especially Irish and German immigrants, because freedom would move north and take their jobs. At one point, Southern sympathy in New York City was so strong that the mayor seriously suggested it should secede and join the Confederacy. Desperate for troops, Congress passed a conscription law in early 1863. Any man between the ages of 20 and 35 and unmarried men up to 45 years old were eligible to be drafted. There was a lottery, but you could buy your way out by hiring a substitute or by paying the government $300, which was about a year's wages for an average worker. In the weeks leading up to the lottery, anti-war newspapers used race bigotry to gin up opposition to the Lincoln administration and the draft. The lottery began on July 12th, naming 1,235 New Yorkers from what they dubbed the Wheel of Misfortune. But all was quiet. The next day, New York erupted for five days. Thousands of white workers including a large contingent of Irish immigrants and those of Irish heritage, attacked government and military buildings, and then they attacked African Americans, their homes, and their businesses. As but just one despicable maneuver, they attacked the Colored Orphan Asylum, which housed 200 children. Now, they didn't hurt the children, but they set the building afire and looted it, an article by John Strabo summarizes the five days of the rampage. Mobs rampaged through most of the week in an orgy of savage murder, arson, and looting. They hung black men from lampposts and dragged their mutilated bodies through the streets. They beat and murdered the pitifully small squads of policemen and soldiers the city initially mustered and grotesquely defiled their corpses as well. It took federal troops to start restoring order to burning rubble-strewn Manhattan that Thursday. The published death count was 119, but many New Yorkers believe the actual toll was hundreds more. Now, these riots targeted blacks, white abolitionists, white women married to black men, and businesses that focused on black customers. They even attacked a white prostitute who served black men. These are the worst riots, and I mean in carnage and in deaths, in U.S. history. Unlike the three incidents we covered in the American Revolution, the instigators and participants of the New York draft riots did not just target the perpetrators of the opposed policies – that would have been the draft board and the wheel of misfortune – no, they turned massively violent – against innocent people with racial hatred and caused widespread property destruction for people completely unrelated to the cause of their anger. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but nothing good came of this stain on American history. On that
0: bitter note, I turn it back
4: to you, Judge Warren.
0: Thanks, Mike Gerard, for that rather depressing uh, but illuminating skin segment on a very dark chapter in American history. Our fifth event has both tragedy and triumph. Bloody Sunday. 1965. Racial tensions had been boiling over. The civil rights struggle had accomplished some amazing victories in the prior decade. Brown versus Board of Education declared racial segregation in public schools unconstitutional. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibited discrimination in employment and public accommodations based on race, religion, national origin, color, and sex. Yet discrimination against African Americans in the South was rampant, and the civil rights movement turned its eyes to that stronghold of bigotry. Southern resistance to civil rights was persistent and virulent. Selma, Alabama, had become a flashpoint. Only 2% of African American eligible voters in Selma were registered to vote. Civil rights organizations targeted Selma for a voter registration campaign in January of 1965. These efforts, were led by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s-led Southern Christian Leadership Conference. These organized efforts to register African-American voters were thwarted at every turn. In fact, hundreds who tried to register to vote were arrested in the nearby town of Marion, Alabama. White state troopers beat protesters and killed African-American Jimmy Lee Jackson. He was just 26 years old and was only trying to protect his mother, who had been hit by police. Civil rights organizers developed a brilliant response. They would march from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery, a 54-mile trek. Led by future Congressman John Lewis and another activist, Hosea Williams, the march of up to 600 people began on March 7th. They peacefully walked through downtown and there reached a long steel arch bridge that crossed the Alabama River. It was named after Edmund Pettus, a Confederate general and Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. When they arrived, they were met with a wall of state troopers. I found this clip on YouTube of what happened next. First, Major John Cloud warned the marchers.
2: To be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly, you have to disperse, you are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue.
0: John Lewis then asked the Major if he could have a word. Cloud replied, Quote, I've got nothing further to say to you, Unquote. Courageously ignoring the warning, the marchers stopped, but did not turn away. Listen to what happened next.
2: People here advance toward the group. See that they disperse.
0: She had trouble visualizing what happened, which of course is difficult to do while you're listening to a podcast, the police rushed the marchers, clubbed John Lewis over the head, and terrorized the rest of the crowd with billy clubs, whips, plastic tubing wrapped with barbed wire, tear gas, mounted police, and other violence. Following Martin Luther King Jr.'s Christian principles of nonviolence and love, The protesters did not resist. They did not fight back. They dispersed. TV crews caught the violence, and it was broadcast across the nation, shocking it into awareness. The incident soon was called Bloody Sunday. Supporting sit-ins, traffic blockades, and demonstrations swept the country. President Lyndon B. Johnson issued a statement, quote, deploring the brutality with which a number of Negro citizens of Alabama were treated, unquote, and he pledged to introduce a voting rights bill to Congress promptly. Dr. King arrived on the scene two days later and gathered a crowd of 2,000 that appeared ready to begin the march again and confront the police. But the police stepped aside, and then King turned back, much to the surprise of his marchers. See, civil rights activists had sued for an injunction to protect the march, but the judge ordered the marchers to wait until he was ready to rule. King was confident that the judge would eventually side with the protesters if they kept their cool, but he also felt he needed to make, at minimum, a symbolic remarch to maintain momentum. In fact, there was at least a tacit agreement between King and law enforcement authorities that he could bring the marchers to the bridge, unimpeded, but he would turn around and go back to comply with the court ruling and give the judge time to make a final ruling. Now, as a judge, I personally appreciate the need for the judge to do his research carefully, and as an activist, I could see why you'd want to do something, anything, even if it was short of what you really wanted to do. But this was all pretty controversial. This incident was dubbed Turnaround Tuesday and drew the severe ire of many activists. However, the gambit paid off. In the end, U.S. District Court Judge Frank Minnis Johnson ruled in favor of the marchers. Before Judge Johnson's ruling, however, on the very night of Turnaround Tuesday, three white Northern Unitarian Universalist ministers who were in Selma for the march were clubbed by KKK members, and Bostonian Reverend James Rebb died from his injuries. This senseless death on March 11th provoked additional public awareness and strengthened public support for the marchers in the civil rights struggle. On the Ides of March, that is March 15th, President Johnson went into action. He convened a joint session of Congress, introduced what would become the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and did so in a powerful speech on live TV, a true innovation for the times. He explained, quote, There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. This is only the struggle for human rights. We have already waited a hundred years and more, and the time for waiting is gone, unquote. President Johnson declared that Selma was, quote, a turning point in man's unending search for freedom, unquote. And echoing Martin Luther King Jr., quote, it is not just Negroes, but really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice, and we shall overcome, unquote. On March 17th, both St. Patrick's Day and the anniversary of Evacuation Day, that is the day the English evacuated Boston during the American Revolution, Judge Johnson ordered an injunction in favor of the marchers. He opined that, Quote,
1: The law is clear that the right to petition one's government for the redress of grievances may be exercised in large groups, and these rights may be exercised by marching, even along public highways.
0: Unquote. Finally, on March 21st, they started the march a third time. And here, three times really is a charm. Not only had Judge Johnson issued an injunction to permit the march, but President Johnson, note the two Johnsons here, federalized 1,900 members of the Alabama National Guard. And he also sent a large contingent of FBI and other officials to protect the marchers. Four days later, they reached Montgomery with a crowd of 25,000 people. The marchers were from all over, and of all races, creeds, and religions. King addressed the crowd. Now this clip is from King, a filmed record, hosted by Democracy Now. Be patient, my young Padawan. This is worth the time.
2: Last Sunday, more than 8,000 of us started on a mighty walk from Selma, Alabama. They told us we wouldn't get here. Now were those who said that we would get here only over their dead bodies. Well, that's a... talk, talk. But all the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. Today <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell the city of Selma. Tell them, doctor. Today I want to say to the state of Alabama. Yes, sir. Today I want to say to the people of America and the nations of the world that we are not about to turn around. Yes, sir. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, we are on the move and no wave of racism can stop us. Yes, sir the burning of our churches will not deter us. Yes, sir. The bombing of our homes will not dissuade us. Yes, sir. The beating and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. Yes, sir. The wet and release of their known murderers will not discourage us. We're on the move now. Yes, sir. Like an idea whose time has come. Yes, sir. Not even the marching of mighty armies can halt us. Yes, sir. We're moving to the land of freedom. Yes, sir. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Sweet, sir. Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, Yes, sir. however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. No, because truth crushed the earth will rise again. Yes, sir. sir. How long? Not long. Yes, sir. Because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. sir. How long? Not long. How long? Because you shall reap what you yes, sir. How long? How Not long. long. long? Yes, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yes, sir. Yet yes. that scaffold sways the future. Yes, sir. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow keeping watch above his own. How long? How long? Not long. How long. Because all the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yes, How long? Not, not long? not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Yes, He's trampling out the vintage oh, where the oh, grapes of wrath are yeah. stored. Yes, yeah. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible Swiss sword. Yes, his truth Ooh. is marching on. Yes, sir. He has sounded forth the trumpet. That shall never call retreat. Lisa, Lisa. He is shifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Yeah. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. His truth
0: is marching on. Wow. That was an inspiring and riveting speech. This set of peaceful protests were critical to American history. Bloody Sunday and the March to Selma became new turning points for the civil rights movement. It all but sparked and ensured the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a phenomenal accomplishment. Back to you, Mike Gerard.
4: Thanks, Judge Warren. Our sixth event also involves Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but doesn't involve his keen organizational skills soaring rhetoric and amazing discipline, but his assassination. On April 3rd, 1968, King was visiting Memphis, Tennessee to support sanitation workers who were on strike. He delivered an amazing speech, often dubbed the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. It was delivered at a mass meeting in favor of the strike at the Bishop Charles Mason Temple. Here's a clip of that speech.
2: Basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read read, that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
4: Such an awesome speech and so prophetic. James Earl Ray shot down Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at 6.05 p.m. on April 4, 1968, while King was standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. A civil rights icon, the minister who continually called for nonviolent protest and finding justice through peaceful means, lay dead at the age of 39, and much of the country would erupt in anger, resentment, and bitterness. Beginning that day, riots, looting, arson, and sniper fire started to break out across the country. Soon, destruction poured over 200 cities Thousands of National Guard troops, federal soldiers, and local police responded. In Baltimore, for example, the riots resulted in over 4,000 arrests, and over a 1,000 businesses had been burned down or looted. Eleven died in Chicago. Over a 1,000 buildings were torched in Washington, D.C. Peter Levy, in his book The Great Uprising, Race Riots in Urban America During the 1960s, explained that, During Holy Week 1968, the United States experienced its greatest wave of social unrest since the Civil War. The Smithsonian Magazine summarized the breadth and scope of the damage. Around 3,500 people were injured, 43 were killed, and 27,000 arrested. Local and state governments and President Lyndon Johnson would deploy a collective total of 58,000 National Guardsmen and Army troops to assist law enforcement officers in quelling the violence. Now, many scholars attribute, in addition to King's assassination, that the violence was caused by the same conditions that resulted in a wave of riots the year before in 1967 to poverty, poor housing, and discrimination facing African Americans. However, not all cities lapsed into violence, New York Mayor John Lindsay all but single-handedly stopped a riot by personally going to Harlem and pleading with residents to stay peaceful. Los Angeles put together police and social leaders to do the same. The most stunning and touching effort, however, was by Robert F. Kennedy, the younger brother of the recently assassinated John F. Kennedy. He was in Indianapolis and gave an impromptu speech to a largely black crowd in a public park. Take a listen. It's a long clip, but it's worth every second.
5: Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King, dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are, and what direction we want to move in for those of you who are black considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge we can move in that direction as a country and greater polarization black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort as Martin Luther King did to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division, what we need in the United States is not hatred, what we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country whether they be white or whether they be black we can do well in this country we will have difficult times we've had difficult times in the past but we will we will have difficult times in the future it is not the end of violence it is not the end of lawlessness and it's not the end of disorder but the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together want to improve the quality of our life and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land with what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world, let us dedicate ourselves to that, and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much.
4: think about that. That speech was delivered on the fly, no preparation. It was obviously very touching inspiring, and poignant. And it still is. Kennedy was magnificent. And if you weren't touched and moved, you either weren't listening or you might need some therapy. I wish everyone in the country right now would take the time, just like you just did, to listen to that speech and reflect on his words. We would almost certainly be more united for justice and peace. Indianapolis did
0: not riot. Judge Warren, back to you. Thank you, Mike Gerard, for that thoughtful review of a very difficult time in our country's history. I agree. If we had taken to heart King's and Kennedy's vision to fight for justice peacefully over 50 years ago and adopted that attitude today, our country would be much further along in fully fulfilling the promises of the Declaration of Independence. Our last event is one that has some strong parallels to the situation we find ourselves in today. When Dr. King was assassinated, Mike Gerard and I were babies. During our last event, I was in my third year at law school at the University of Michigan, go blue, and skin was, well, only the shadow knows. Uh, We're going to turn this segment over to another guest host, David Gerwinke, a true patriot and lawyer with the law firm of Pat and Ryan in Chicago.
1: Thank you, Judge. African-American Rodney King was on parole for robbery. In March 1991, he fled the police in a high-speed car chase going over 100 miles an hour through Los Angeles. He was eventually stopped and ordered out of the car. Uncooperative and intoxicated, King resisted. Once he was taken down to the ground, four white police officers repeatedly kicked and bludgeoned him with batons 56 times. Those officers were surrounded by at least 17 other officers who watched and chatted during the beating. George Holliday was on his apartment's balcony and taped the beating. It was released the next day on a local television station and became an overnight sensation. King was no saint, but most viewers of the video saw unequivocal proof that he was savagely beaten with excessive force. Most attributed the police brutality to a long standing problem with race relations between a mostly white LA police force and the African American community. King suffered skull fractures, broken bones and teeth, and suffered permanent brain damage. All the officers were charged with assault with a deadly weapon and use of excessive force, and two were charged with filing false police reports. The case was moved out of Los Angeles to nearby Simi Valley. On April 29, 1992, much to the shock of the nation, the jury was deadlocked on one charge and otherwise acquitted all four defendants of all the other charges. The jury was composed of nine whites, one Latino, one Asian, and one biracial member. For many, it was considered a grave injustice perpetuating racism within three hours riots started in LA fires and looting spread quickly highway traffic was blocked white and light-skinned Latino motorists were pulled out of their cars and beaten the worst of the riots happened in what is now called South Los Angeles a predominantly black area with unemployment of approximately 50% drug use that was like a plague. Gangs roamed the streets and violent crime was high. Racial tensions were already exacerbated by the killing of an African-American girl by a Korean store owner the month before. Relations between the police and African-Americans were terrible. Accusations of police brutality abounded. In the middle of this chaos, Rodney King held a press conference where he uttered simple but powerful words. I just want to say, you know, can we can we all get along? Can we can we
2: get along? Um, can we stop making it
1: making it horrible for for the for the older people and the, and, the, and the and the kids? Unfortunately, not everyone followed King's advice. The riots continued for a total of five days. LAPD stood down at the beginning. Eventually, Governor Wilson called in the National Guard, and the Insurrection Act enabled President George Herbert Walker Bush to send 1,100 Marines and 600 Army soldiers. When it was all over, a billion dollars of property damage was sustained. 3,000 buildings were burned, 12,111 people were arrested, 2,383 were injured, and 63 were dead. This was the most destructive single American riot in the 20th century. In response, the federal government charged the four officers with violating Rodney King's civil rights. On April 17, 1993, two of the four officers were convicted and sentenced to 30 months in prison, while the other two culprits were acquitted but fired. The peace held. Rodney King won a civil suit against the officers, but drowned in a swimming pool in 2012. The San Bernardino coroner's autopsy report concluded that King died of accidental drowning because King was in a quote, drug and alcohol induced delirium, unquote. I wish I could report something positive out of these riots, but I try not to lie. Back to you, Judge Warren.
0: Thank you, David, for a review of another sad chapter in American history. This episode has shown that riots, protests, and mobs are a long-standing tradition in American history. Thomas Jefferson, for one, thought this was necessary. In a letter written in 1787, in which he was reflecting on the draft constitution, he declared, Quote,
1: And can history produce an instance of a rebellion so honorably conducted? I say nothing of its motives. They were founded in ignorance, not wickedness. God forbid we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. The people cannot be all and always well-informed. The part which is wrong will be discontented in proportion to the importance of the facts they misconceive. If they remain quiet under such misconceptions, it is a lethargy, the forerunner of death to the public liberty." We have had 13 states independent 11 years. There has been one rebellion. That comes to one rebellion in a century and a half for each state. What country before ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right as to the facts. Pardon and pacify them. What signify a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure.
0: Whether you agree with that sentiment or stand by Martin Luther King Jr.'s principle of nonviolence, there is no question that at times blood has caused momentously positive changes in our country. And at other times, it has simply been wasted. Some key takeaways from this episode. America has had a long tradition of riots, protest, and mob action, in resistance to government oppression and injustice. In fact, as we learned, several of the sparks that burst into the American Revolution were the result of such aggressive actions by the patriots. The Stamp Act riots, the Boston Massacre, and the Boston Tea Party were such resistance. We can definitely draw a straight line from those sparks to the freedoms we enjoy today. We have also learned that peaceful resistance can reveal the ugly side of our society, such as Bloody Sunday, which has unified public sentiment in support of freedom and equality to help us better fulfill the promises of the Declaration of Independence. On the other hand, some civil conflagrations, such as the New York Giraffe Riots and the Rodney King Riots, have had no positive influence. The New York Giraffe Riots were simply evil and was an attempt to perpetuate oppression, inequality, and injustice. The Rodney King riots, although perhaps sparked from an understandable deep pain and reaction to injustice, resulted in the destruction of innocent lives and property, and did not seem to further the cause of freedom, justice, or equality. And Robert Kennedy's plea to the open-minded, angry crowd in Indianapolis is a shining testament to the power of love and peace. What our nation is confronting today in the wake of George Floyd's senseless death is nothing new. The question is whether we will leverage this moment to deepen our commitment to our first principles of the rule of law, unalienable rights, limited government, the social compact, and equality, or if it will result in the subversion of those principles. That podcast episode has yet to be written. It is up to us. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence when we examine the meaning of the unalienable right of liberty. Until then, God bless you and God bless America.
1: Thank you, patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, how to stop America's impending suicide by reclaiming our first principles in history by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.